This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Navy will have to choose one out of three of its modernization priorities because of budget, according to the acting Secretary of the Navy. Thomas Harker writes the service will have to choose from a new destroyer, a new attack sub, or a new fighter jet. Defense News reports Harker writes the Navy will have to make the choice in the 2023 budget request. The Navy's reviewing results tonight of a test that used a drone to refuel a fighter jet. An MQ-25 T-1 Stingray drone delivered 325 pounds of fuel to an F-A-18 Friday. Defense News reports the test is a step toward adding drones to carrier air wings. The Naval Medical Research Center will study the long-term effects of the coronavirus on a group of Marines. The center says the study is a new version of last year's COVID-19 Health Action Response for Marines study. USNI News reports the new study's goal is to assess immune systems and evaluate chronic COVID symptoms. The Joint Artificial Intelligence Center will lead AI implementation at the Pentagon, according to a new department-wide memo. That memo orders the Jake Director to develop a responsible AI ecosystem for the department. Bob Work is co-chair of the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence. He's former Deputy Secretary of Defense. He's writing about AI and war in the rocks. Bob, welcome. It's great to see you again. Your piece about synthetic biology and AI is fascinating. Give me a thumbnail, if you will, about what synthetic biology is and how it relates to AI. Well, first of all, it's great to be back, uh, Francis. Uh, good morning. You know, biology is now programmable. There have been dramatic decreases in the cost of DNA sequencing and synthesis over the past few decades. And so scientists can now read the code of life. And we have CRISPR gene editing tools that give scientists the ability to alter code. Um, up to this point, we haven't really been able to do too much with this uh, advance uh, because we've constrained by our relative ignorance about what genetic data uh, does, how it drives physical outcomes. But artificial intelligence is going to give biologists an ability to understand that more and more. Biology is complex. In humans alone, there's trillions of cells interacting and instructing each other. AI, machine learning, uh, have the potential to go through these enormous biological data sets and make sense of them. And uh, it will improve the methods of reading biological data, including the sequences and the quantities of DNA, RNA, and proteins. And so it's going to allow us to store large quantities of information and actually predict how changes to codes might be reflected uh, in biological outcomes. Advances in biotechnology is estimated to have a direct economic impact of $4 trillion per year over the next 10 years. So this is an enormous new um, field of study. And it's just quite exciting. 
You write in this piece that the commission uh, on, uh, of which you're a co-chair identified biotechnology as one of seven emerging technologies that will be critical to future national competitiveness. And then you uh, allude to a dark side of biotechnology in convergence with AI. What's that dark side and why is this so important to future competitiveness? Yeah, the dark side, unfortunately, technology can be used for enormous good. But bad actors can often use technology uh, to do bad things, as we see with uh, the Internet and now all of the different types of attacks that uh, occur over the Internet. Biotechnology, these technologies will allow people to make sp um, special genomic uh, weapons, you know, uh, viruses, things like that. They will be able to make them, and they will make them to uh, wind up with outcomes. It's like they can make a, uh, a pathogen that wouldn't be lethal, but would sicken a person so that an attacker might want to overwhelm the U.S. hospital system, like we saw at the height of the COVID pandemic. Um, or they might want to make it uh, as a lethal pathogen. So AI is absolutely critical for us to be able, when we, get, when we are attacked in this manner, we get a sample and AI will allow us to try to create an antibody or uh, a uh, vaccine. You know, in January 11th, the Chinese authorities shared the genetic sequence of COVID-19 for the first time. And on January 13th, Moderna, use this information to finalize the design of its vaccine. And it was able to do this with these new tools, uh, these new machine learning tools and artificial intelligence tools. Uh, so it's just absolutely critical. People are going to use this technology for malign reasons. And we need AI to protect us. We have uh, just a minute or so left, Bob. You write in this piece, the government ought to view its AI and biotechnology strategies as mutually reinforcing. How does one or how does a group of people uh, write those strategies so that they are mutually reinforcing, as you suggest? Yes, you mentioned that we identified seven different technologies that we really have to have a national strategy for. AI is one, biosynthetic biology is one, quantum computing, robotics and autonomy, um, microelectronics, energy and advanced manufacturing. All of these things will work together in ways that we can't really foresee right now. But AI with quantum computing, for example, is going to wind up with all sorts of new and novel materials, uh, you know, things in physics that we simply could not understand or could not um, really perceive. So the combination of those things, then the microelectronics are what all of these AI algorithms work on. The way to do this, we think, is to have a te technology competitiveness committee, uh, council, in the White House, serving uh, for the vice president. And this council would create these national strategies for all seven of these different technologies that are so central to our economic 
security and our national security. And they would be the ones to figure out how best to mesh them together. So we're hopeful that you know, the United States will become more uh, serious about this technological competition that we find ourselves in. And we think having high-level leadership coming directly from the White House is the way to do it. Bob Work, thanks very much as always. It's great to have you back on the program. Always great to be here, Francis. Thank you. You can find a link to Bob's piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. Coming next, defense decisions today that will affect the military for decades. Straight ahead on Government Matters, little-known national security positions that pack a big punch. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness has a new nominee. If the Senate confirms him, former California Congressman and Navy veteran Gil Cisneros will face issues of building and maintaining human capital efforts in the department. Catherine Kuzminski is Senior Fellow and Director of the Military Veterans and Society Program at the Center for a New American Security. She's writing about the job ahead for Gil Cisneros in War on the Rocks, along with her colleague, Natalie Grogan. Kate, welcome. It's good to see you again. Why is this job important enough or maybe not recognized enough that you and Natalie wanted to write about it in the first place? Yeah, so the role of the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness is uh, outlined in Title 10. Um, normally, much of personnel policy is delegated to the services through their service secretaries, their manpower and reserve affairs offices led by a civilian, and then um, through their personnel offices led by a general officer. But the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness has three major roles that um, they uh, execute uh, in the management of personnel policy in the department. First, they set requirements for personnel data and internal reporting requirements, which drives much of what we know about personnel policy and how effective it is. They have the authority where practical uh, to standardize those personnel processes across the services. And they have the power to convene representatives from across the services, which can provide both information to and incentivize the services openness to the use of flexibilities that are provided by Congress annually through the National Defense Authorization Act. Um, they, their goal is to help the services to uh, recruit, retain, and manage the, the talent that they have out there. And it's also worth noting that the personnel part of the overall defense budget takes up about a quarter of the budget, but is frequently overlooked for other issues like uh, platform development and the development of new technology. Yes, uh, you and Natalie write it this way in this piece, the Defense Department tends to overlook the importance of military personnel management as an area of strategic investment. How does that happen? Everybody, whether they're civilian or uniform, that comes on this program says people drive our service, people, 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 people. And yet your observation is not the first observation that I've seen that this office and this area get overlooked quite often. Yeah, I think um, in part we forget that the individuals who are being recruited today are the future leadership of the military. It's a, a closed uh, promotion system. And so individuals who are uh, commissioning this year are going to be the pool of talent from whom we select our uh, 
Joint Chiefs of Staff of the year 2058, uh, quite in the future. And the, and the services don't really, um, or traditionally, certainly at the leadership level, they're not recruiting lateral talent like we see in the private sector or even in other areas of government. Um, so it's really important to think about the incentives that we place out for service members, uh, both to recruit and retain them uh, early in their careers to ensure that we have the best possible uh, group of individuals from whom to select our future leadership. And those are the individuals who will be executing on the strategy that's developed at the national level, who will be making the investments um, and the acquisitions for future platforms. Um, but they uh, tend to garner less uh, less attention because it does take 30 to 40 years to grow a general or flag officer. If uh, the Senate confirms Mr. Cisneros, what agenda would you like to see him undertake, Kate? I think there's a couple of things where there's already a lot of work underway and he can build on some successes. Um, first, uh, you know, we would encourage the, the undersecretary to take a look at the flexibilities uh, for personnel management that were provided in the fiscal year 2019 NDAA that hope to expand uh, access to individual talent. Um, so for example, the ability to laterally commission individuals to a much higher grade than was previously possible might be able to bring in some technical talent from the private sector. Um, further thinking through a lot of the work that's been done in the last year on diversity, equity, and inclusion um, with a number of boards at the DOD level and then across the services, finding ways to systematize the data that DOD collects to see where the Department of Defense um, uh, is performing on, on each of these metrics and then think through what future strategy might be. Um, you mentioned diversity, equity, and inclusion. Is it possible that because of the emphasis the administration is putting on that as one of its big four all across the government, not just in the department, that that might elevate, at least in the minds of people who haven't been paying attention, might elevate the importance of this office, Kate? I think that's true, and I also think that um, in the in the last uh, since the administration came into office, uh, it's been really fantastic to see that the Secretary of Defense, the Deputy Secretary of Defense, um, and the Senior Advisor to the Secretary of Defense on Human Capital, uh, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion have been spending a lot of time focused on these issues. I think what we'll see as the year goes on is that. Um, the attention that the secretary is able to give to those issues now and raise those issues to the top um, will be passed on to the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness, who will ultimately be responsible for ensuring the success of those programs as the secretary and the deputy secretary focus on broad strategic issues like competition with China. Uh, less than a minute, Kate. What will you watch moving forward in this area? Um, I think it will be great to see, uh, have, have a, a consistent nominee in the office. There's been a lot of churn uh, historically in this office, and in part that's probably due to the fact that the services do have so much responsibility. Um, but really seeing, uh, having a, a Secretary of Defense, uh, Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness come in with uh, real attention on the importance of the long-term trends that we're seeing in military personnel and readiness um, and, and collecting the data to, to match up with that. Kate Kuzminski, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to see you again. Thank you so much. You can find a link to Kate's piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, the service wish lists for defense spending are out. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the biggest surprises in the DOD budget request. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back.
Welcome back. The defense budget request from the White House cuts DOD procurement funding by $8 billion. The request asks for $112 billion for research and development. That's a 5% increase. Todd Harrison's Director of Defense Budget Analysis and the Aerospace Security Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Todd, it's good to see you. Thanks for coming on as always. I guess the big question I always have for you when these things roll out is, once you've had a chance to go line by line to whatever detail you do, anything surprise you? Anything struck you as unusual or something you weren't expecting in this budget request? Yeah, I think it, you know, there's not a lot of surprises in this request overall, but there were a few things that jumped out to me. Uh, first of all, is we didn't see as big of a, a transfer from the Army to the Navy in terms of budget share as I think a lot of people had been expecting or fearing in the case of the Army. Um, and so, you know, what that means is that the Navy's uh, procurement plans are scaled back a bit. Uh, from what had previously been projected uh, for FY22. Uh, and the Army did not actually take, you know, significant cuts in force structure. So the Army is largely retaining its force, minor trim and in strength. Um, so not a lot of rebalancing there, like, you know, some people had probably been expecting. The other interesting thing, you know, so now diving down into some of the details at the line item level, uh, is what the Air Force did with this advanced battle management system, ABMS. And so this is supposed to be the Air Force's flagship program uh, for joint all-domain command and control. And what they did is uh, they actually cut the funding by more than half of what it was supposed to get in FY22. You know, if you look at last year's projections. Uh, so they, you know, really scaled down that program. And yet at the same time, the Air Force is saying that this is a top acquisition priority. One of the things that you educated me about a long time ago when I began this journey was that sometimes in these requests, we see nuggets like you just described with ABMS that may or may not be, um, I think you used the term a cry for help at one point where the Air Force is saying within the budget construct that we have, we're asking for this, but we maybe they don't say it explicitly. We really hope Congress changes this. Is that potentially one of the things that you see with the ABMS line and with the, the construct with the Navy, given the fact that especially with ABMS, it's going to be the backbone of JADC2? Yeah, you know, actually, I, I don't think that's the case on ABMS uh, because Congress actually cut the funding for it last year. <laughs> so I think the Air Force, I think this may be a signal that they're pausing and they know that they've got a problem in the way they're communicating the program and its objectives and, and what we're actually buying with the money. Uh, and they need to basically go back and rebaseline a bit uh, before they they start jumping into this further. I think there is a cry for help in other parts of the budget, namely, you know, where the Air Force and the Navy are proposing to divest a lot of their existing platforms. What you know, DOD is calling legacy platforms, but that becomes a very loaded term when you go to Capitol Hill. Uh, but you know, they're proposing divestments of planes and ships that. I think they, they, they're pretty sure Congress is going to add them back. But what it does is it puts the onus on Congress to figure out how to pay for it, either by cutting other things in the DOD budget 
or I think what DOD hopes uh, is that Congress will actually raise the overall top line of the defense budget to fund these things. Um, the other item that is always interesting to me about the budget is what's not in the budget and winds up on the wish lists for each of the services. What uh, struck you, if anything, about any of the wish lists that we've now seen since the budget request has come out? Well, you know, the, the most interesting and somewhat humorous thing about the wish list uh, is that, you know, the budget came out and the wish list came out almost immediately after it. Normally, there's a bit of a lag uh, before the services actually get around to submitting those to Congress, but they came out almost at the same time this year. And in part, that's because DOD has been, you know, done with its budget request for months now, and they've really just been waiting on OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, to get the overall federal budget together to submit it to Congress. So they've had plenty of time to work these wish lists, and they were, you know, apparently cocked and ready to go. Um, you know, not a lot of huge surprises in the wish list. They want to buy back some things uh, in some areas. You know, it's readiness or or buying. Uh, you know, more ISR in cases some of the uh, COCOMs. Um, you know, that that's one of the things that stood out to me is looking at Southcom because uh, it's not just the military services. The COCOMs also submit these wish lists, but Southcom cited uh, the need uh, for more ISR funding because. Last year, Congress eliminated the ISR transfer fund, which had been used by the COCOMs uh, to get more ISR support in their region so they could have a better idea of what's going on on the ground and track things. And so now Southcom is coming back and saying, hey, that's on our wish list. We want to get some more ISR funding in here. Todd Harrison, thanks very much. As always, great to have you in the program again. All right. Glad I could do it. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every show when you sign up for our daily program guide. You just text GOVMATTERS to 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time 
about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? It's so important because the agencies have been dealing with 20-year-old network technology um, for 20 years. And, and basically, this is their opportunity to use this important contract to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital-centric services. And the government needs the, the network to, uh, to step up to those uh, expectations. This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say, five years from now, that the agencies will be able to access that? The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract? GSA's got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. But GSA's been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example, examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want. Here's, what I want to, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think, I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still s stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like, the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned, you ought to, Stop, stop the presses, start over again and recast the requirement to reflect what's, what's needed, uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today. We just have uh, 20 seconds left, Tony. You have, you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract, it sounds like. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's critical. It's the right time. The technology is very, very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Francis.